Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I'm a senior research fellow here and the deputy head of school in the School of Philosophy. I'm just going to start off by, with the acknowledgement of country by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, paying my respects to the Ngunnawal people and their elders past and present. Uh, so our talk tonight is going to be on blood oil. So this continent has only 0.3% of the world's oil reserves, but its many other natural resources were first brought into the global marketplace through mass theft and the displacement and murder of Aboriginal populations. So as we acknowledge country, uh, I think we should note that the topic of tonight's talk has direct bearing not only on the current petro-states, um, but also much closer to home. So this is going to be the first lecture in an occasional series um, that's being launched by the School of Philosophy on philosophy and public policy. Our plan is that we're going to hold an event twice a year, uh, bringing a major philosophical figure to Canberra to address issues of national and international concern. So we thank you all for coming and hope you'll join us again in March when Peter Singer will be talking about effective altruism. Um, for now, what we're going to do is um, Christian Barry, the head of school, is going to introduce tonight's speaker, Philae Founar. Um, Leif's going to talk for about um, 45 minutes, an hour or so, and then we'll have about uh, 45 minutes or an hour for questions afterwards and then a reception. So, Christian, if you'll just introduce Leif. Hi. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Leif Founar to be our first lecturer in this series. Leif is definitely a public philosopher in the strongest sense, both in that he's interested in issues that are of public concern and that he is actually out in the public trying to learn from the ways in which people outside of the cozy confines of philosophy and academia more generally receive his ideas or push back on his ideas. Um, I've known Leigh for quite a while and I first discovered his work when he was actually writing on themes that are going to be the subject of our next speaker, Peter Singer, um, and who famously had introduced philosophy to issues of global poverty by trying to posit an analogy of a shallow pond and likening our position as affluent members of affluent countries to people who sort of pass by a child that is drowning. And Leif's work was pushing back on this analogy, drawing attention to the fact that there were very significant differences between the real life scenario of affluent people and what they can do to address poverty and what somebody passing by a pond can do. But not being sort of uh, resting with that, Leif actually went on to try to develop proposals for how we could actually get better information about the way in which we actually can engage with others, the way in which we can have more confidence in our judgments about the way in which financial flows can benefit poor people abroad. Um, and his project here, too, again, is interesting in that it's not simply uh, focusing on the diagnosis of a problem, but actually trying through iteration and engagement to try to develop creative proposals, institutional proposals that take into account the large amount of disagreement about some of the empirical issues that he's engaged with that there is. Well, a lot of the political and moral debates about globalization focus on international trade. And for those who are sort of typically represent themselves as pro-globalization, international trade represents everything that is good about globalization, the increasing inter integration of people, ideas, uh, within a market-oriented framework. 
And for those critics of globalization, they see everything that is wrong with globalization, that is a system of trade that has been constructed in a way that they see is harmful for the poor, or at the very least does not allow the poor a fair share of the gains from international trade. Well, Leif's book is interesting in that it sort of both recognizes lyrically, I'll go on to point out, um, both many benefits of international trade and also some of the pitfalls of international trade. So first for the benefits, and this is sort of uh, by way of sort of uh, indicating also how lyrically and well-written this book is, although it is a, a large policy tome. Um, uh, Leif writes early in the book, the supply chains that bring us the Earth's bounty are one of our species' great achievements. To make your shoes, a troop of humans performed an elaborate dance across several continents, the complexity of their choreography surpassing any Balanchine ballet, and your shoes are only one global product. Could we see all the global supply chains for goods all at once, glowing on the Earth's surface? We would see a system of billions of nodes making trillions of connections, resembling nothing more than a fluorescent cross-section of the human brain spread across the map. And this brain, like web, is growing. Over the past generation, global trade in goods has quadrupled in volume, connecting people ever more physically, while the internet has connected them socially. And in fact, these two systems have grown in symbiosis, the web of supply chains building and powering the internet, while the internet controls the dynamic, frenetic, worldwide web of supply chains that brings our molecules to us. So that's the good news. Um, but the bad news is that although trade involves voluntary exchange, and there's generally a presumption in favor of voluntary exchange, uh, one of the major themes of Leif's book is that voluntary exchange is still only permissible if the goods that are being exchanged are uh, the rightful possessions of those that are exchanging them. Um, and as he goes on to say, all is not well amidst the wonders we have made. One link in the global supply chains is distorted, defective, unclean. And this link, trade works less like a life machine than its opposite. The defective link is the first link where raw materials like petroleum, metals, and gems are extracted from the ground. There is something about extracting such resources that risks disaster. So I'm going to turn over to Leif to talk a little bit about that. I should have noted that he is, in fact, a chair in law and philosophy at King's College London um, and a former visitor to the RSSS and the School of Philosophy. So uh, thank you and welcome, Leif. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to Seth, and thanks very much to Christian, and thanks to you for coming out of the sunshine of this beautiful day in your beautiful city to think things through together. I'm grateful to you. It means a lot to be back here at ANU. I was here as a visitor six years ago doing work on this project, and it was a fundamentally important time here because the intellectual community here is so strong. I, I was thinking about this on the plane. If I had to point to one place where there really is an intellectual community, where you can put emphasis on both of those words, it would be ANU. I've never seen anything like the intellectuals here and the community here. It's so strong, and it was just pivotal for me to be here to do this work. So thanks very much. I really have to thank Seth for allowing me to be a speaker in this series. It's a terrific thing to do. And thanks also to, for Christian. We've had conversations over all these years. I mean, it really is events like this um, that sustain our communities. And it's our communities that in turn sustain us through all the trials and the milestones of our lives. So thank you for making me part of this.
Now, you might think that with a title like Blood Oil, this book would be about the extreme injustices that our governments have inflicted in places like Iraq, or about the highly questionable actions of our major oil companies for many years. And the book does tell those stories for those who don't know them, but you're sophisticated people. And I'm just imagining that if we talked about the misguided policies and hypocrisies of our governments and our corporations, we would more or less already agree on those topics. So that's not what I'm going to start with today. Today I'm going to start with a deeper story from the book, which is a story that hasn't yet been told. The deeper story is why we, as consumers, are forced every day to fund much of the suffering and injustice that shows up in our headlines. Our own laws are forcing us to empower some of the world's most dangerous men. Now, I have to warn you that what we're going to see is some of the terrible parts of our world to see how we're connected to them. But I promise that by the end, the message will turn positive. If we work hard and if we work together, we can reduce the suffering and injustice in tomorrow's headlines while making ourselves safer and, in fact, pushing the world through its next step forward in history. But like Dante, first we have to descend into the inferno before we can see a path upwards. To understand the infernal world that we're in, I'm going to ask you to start with your smartphone. So in my smartphone, in your smartphone, may be a small piece of the Congo, a small piece of metal that was extracted at gunpoint by one of the vicious militias in that ongoing civil war that have used sexual violence so extensively that the Congo has been called the worst country in the world to be a woman. At the height of the conflict, it was reported that a girl was more likely to be raped than to go to school. And it was reported that dozens of women were being sexually assaulted every hour. But here's a fact you might not have thought of. Even if there are conflict minerals in our smartphones, you own your phone, I own my phone, 100% every molecule free and clear under the laws of our country. Under Australian laws, under British laws, this is our property right. No one can challenge it. And some of the money that we paid for our phone will have gone back to those militias to help them buy more bullets and more bayonets. And that's the mystery we need to think about. Somehow, extreme violence there turns into legal property here, and our cash goes back to the men of violence to help fund more of their sadism. That's a mystery. Why are we in business with those awful men abroad? Now, metals that we buy from war zones are a big problem. 
but an even bigger problem is oil. And to see why, friends, we're going to need to have a bit of a frank talk about oil. So because of climate change, as you know, we should be getting off oil just as fast as we feasibly can. But it's going to take a while. Because right now, most of the world runs on this pungent, combustible mud. Oil is by far the world's biggest traded commodity, and it is humanity's primary source of energy. The world uses 1,000 barrels of oil. That's almost 160,000 liters of oil each and every second. 90% of the world's transportation right now runs on oil. That's almost every car, lorry, ship, and plane that we have in the world's fleet. Every single thing that you can see right now, including the people, has been transported to where it is using oil. Nearly everything we buy in the shops has been delivered with oil-powered vehicles, and oil is not just used for transportation. Most of the food that we buy is grown with nitrogen that's been extracted from oil. Moreover, oil is used to make all sorts of everyday goods. Basically, if it's plastic, it's oil. And if it's synthetic, it's probably made with oil. Oil, well, you might have smeared it on your face this morning. It might be in your waistband. It might be helping your sex life. Oil is everywhere. So where does Australia's oil come from? Well, as you probably know, Australia is almost entirely dependent on imported crude oil. About 85% is the latest government figure. Some of that crude oil does come from West Africa, where in one of the countries, a longstanding dictator has become richer than Queen Elizabeth while torturing his political opponents and forcing most of his people to live on less every day than what you could buy in Canberra with $2.50. But more of Australia's oil comes from Russia. And even more than that, in fact, the biggest foreign source is the Middle East. And that might make us suspicious. That might make us suspect that the money we pay for oil is not only being spent by African dictators to impress their own people. We might suspect that the money that we pay at the pump is being used to fund trouble more broadly, and that even might be coming back home to bite us back. Now, that suspicion is correct. So to see how, let's now look back through history and survey the worst foreign threats and crises that the West has faced over the last 40 years. And as I go through four decades of headlines. I'm just going to ask if you can see that all of them have one thing in common. 
So today we see ISIS with their beheadings and their atrocities. We see Assad of Syria barrel bombing his own people, intensifying a refugee crisis that's putting pressure on the politics of Europe. Putin is bombing in Syria, interfering with the American elections. Two years ago, he launched Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Before Putin, it was Gaddafi, behind terrorist groups from the IRA to the Lockerbie bombers. Before Gaddafi, it was Al-Qaeda, probably behind 7-7, right next to where I live in London, definitely behind 9-11. Before 9-11, it was Gaddafi launching his invasion of Kuwait in 1990. I'm sorry, Saddam Hussein in 1990. Yeah, right, thank you. And before Saddam Hussein, if you're this old, you remember the Soviet Union in the 80s, surging ahead of us in the nuclear arms race. And since 1979, the Iranian regime has been funding terrorist militias from Hamas to Hezbollah to Islamic Jihad. So did you guess what all the threats and crises have in common, all of them came from countries that have a lot of oil. And why? Why is oil so often the source of our worst threats and crises? Well, as usual, when you want to get to root causes, you have to follow the money. After all, all of those missiles and bombs and propaganda, all that cost money. Where ultimately does that money come from? Well, of course it comes from us. It comes from us as consumers when we pay for petrol and for anything that's made or transported with petrol, which as we've seen is almost everything we buy. The men behind those threats and crises have gotten trillions of dollars from us over the years, and they've been causing a lot of trouble with our money. And why? Why have those men been getting our money? Well, my main message to you tonight is that oil is behind the West's worst threats and crises because of one very old and very bad law that's defined business as usual for centuries that we take for granted but that also drives authoritarian repression and civil war and violent extremism abroad. This is our law that says we will buy natural resources from whoever overseas can control them by force. This is in fact the law of every country that says for the natural resources of other countries, might makes right. So, for example, when Saddam Hussein took over Iraq in a coup many years ago, Australian law made it legal to buy Iraq's oil from Saddam. And then years later, when ISIS took over some of those same wells, Australia's law made it legal to buy Iraq's oil from ISIS. Now, that's an archaic law. It's been around since the days of the slave trade. 
But when you think about it, it doesn't make much sense today. I mean, if an armed gang takes over the shell station down the street, should Australian law give the gang a right to sell off the petrol and keep the money? No, that would cause chaos. But when Gaddafi took over Libya in a coup in 1969, Australia made it legal to buy Libya's oil from Gaddafi. And then years later, during the Arab Spring, when rebels took over some of those same wells, all countries' law made it legal to buy Libya's oil from the rebels. Our law of might makes right puts us into legal business relationships with whoever can control resources overseas. And that's what's been driving a lot of the violence that ends up in our headlines. Might makes right incites oppression and violence. Because the law of every country says that coercion will be rewarded with large sums of money, the most coercive men fight for control over the resources, and then they use the money they gain from control to stay on top. To see why this law causes such trouble, imagine that New York State declared might makes right for New Jersey. I mean, just imagine the New York legislature passes a law that says any goods that are seized by force in New Jersey can legally be sold to New Yorkers, and that New York's police and courts will enforce those property rights. What do you think New Jersey would look like after a while? Well, we'd probably see crime kings, turf wars, extortion rackets, just the kinds of things that we actually do see on a much larger scale in many oil-rich countries around the world. So here are the countries that are oil states, either ruled by authoritarians or failed because of widespread civil conflict. On the map, you see the world's main artery of oil stretching down from Siberia through the Middle East into Africa. So that is what political scientists call the oil curse. Now, the West has, of course, intervened in some of those countries, and we'll get to that soon. But the oil curse is obviously a systemic problem that affects a large number of countries that are otherwise quite different. What's driving the violence and repression is a systemic cause, which is this bad old law of might makes right for oil and other resources. Because of might makes right, armed groups are incentivized to fight for control over oil. And more and more of the world's civil wars are occurring in oil states. Because this law rewards control of oil with big money, it empowers authoritarians to dominate their countries with the muscle and the loyalty that that money can buy. And more and more of the world's autocrats are now petrocrats. And the money going to the Saudi regime has produced the 21st century's greatest historical anomaly, which is the global spread of an Islamic fundamentalism that harks back to the seventh century. 
Over the past 40 years, the Saudi regime has used tens of billions of petrodollars to convert one formerly tolerant Muslim communities around the world to its intolerant doctrines. And it's those doctrines that we now see mutating into jihadi extremism, not only in the Middle East and Asia, but in Belgium, in France, in Britain, and in America, and unfortunately, in Australia, too. We were so saddened in London to see the recent knife attack in the suburbs of Sydney. And like you, we are so distressed to see our young people attracted by this medieval anachronism, which is being funded worldwide by oil money. The very bad news is that when we pay at the pump, we may be sending money to men who consider us to be their enemies. And when we buy something that's been made with or transported with oil, we may be helping to spread ideologies that are hostile to our way of life. Here's the crucial fact about oil and power in our world. Might makes right turns oil into the largest source of absolute, unaccountable power in the world. Because of this law, when someone gains control of oil, it's like a giant funnel of money comes directly into their hands. That money comes with no strings attached. It never has to be paid back. They can spend it on whatever they like. And of course, the people of the country have to watch while the resources of their country are sold off entirely beyond their control. This unchecked power of oil is a major cause of the oppression and instability we've seen in many oil-rich countries, and especially in the Middle East. And once we see the problem of the oil curse as being a problem of absolute unaccountable power, we can then see the failed policies of our own governments as attempts to check the power of oil from outside the country. So over the past 40 years, Western states have used three main strategies to try to check the power of oil from outside. Sometimes our governments have made alliances with oil-rich authoritarians, the Shah of Iran, Saddam, Gaddafi, Saudis. Sometimes our governments have launched military actions, Gulf War I, Gulf War II, the Libya intervention, cover the region with drones. Sometimes we've imposed sanctions. Iran, Iraq, Sudan, Syria, Russia. And after 40 years, what are the results that these strategies have achieved? I'm not asking about the morality of these strategies. I think we would agree about the morality of what we've done. I'm just asking about the results on the ground in terms of peace and stability in these regions. What outcomes have these strategies produced? 
Well, John Brennan, the director of the CIA, gave his verdict in March, testifying in front of Congress. He said, the Middle East is the worst it's been in 50 years, and the region faces unprecedented bloodshed. The power of oil can't be checked from outside the country by the West, or in fact, by anyone. Which means we're in a bad place. This archaic law of might makes right, sending hundreds of billions of dollars a year to violent and oppressive men. These men use their unaccountable power to oppress their people, sometimes to start civil wars, to spread their intolerant doctrines. These oil-fueled armed groups and authoritarians have been causing threats and crises for a generation from the Soviet Union and Russia through the Middle East to Africa. And unfortunately, it looks like the oil curse is now about to get worse. So because of climate change, the oil-rich states on the equator in the next 10 to 15 years are going to be getting hotter and hungrier and thirstier as their populations expand and they go through a youth bulge at the same time as they fill up with more powerful explosives and drones. And that's likely to mean these countries are going to be getting even less stable than they are now. More popular uprisings may be met with greater authoritarian repression, leading to the further spread of violent extremism. If we stay with this old law, our future may be like our past, only more so. Tomorrow's headlines may show what happens when our money from our everyday purchases ends up going to whoever in countries like these has the most guns. Well, is there any hope for change? Could we possibly uh, abolish this bad old law of might makes right and upgrade the global trade system so it stops sending us these impossible threats and crises? As you can imagine, it won't be easy Powerful actors are entrenched in our business as usual, the Saudis, the big oil companies. But actually, there is hope for change. And in fact, everything is set up now for us to abolish might makes right for natural resources. And we know that we can do this because Humanity has abolished might makes right many times before. So 300 years ago, might makes right was the world's rule not only for oil, but for almost everything, even for human beings. Back then, every country's rule for human beings was whoever can seize them by force can sell them to us. And under that rule, 12 million Africans were forced through the awful 
Middle Passage where the survivors were legally bought as property in the New World. Might made right. Even a hundred years ago, might makes right made colonial rule legal. Back then, the international rule was if one country could keep coercive control over another population, it gained the legal right to rule that population as the sovereign. Might made right. Even in our own time, this rule made apartheid legal. If a regime could keep coercive control over a population, it gained the internationally recognized legal right to maintain a racist white regime. Might made right. Ethnic cleansing, even genocide, used to be permitted under international law, which was primarily legitimation of violence. But now look. In the 21st century, all of those practices have been outlawed. The slave trade, colonial rule, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide. These are all now violations of international law. And in fact, we've even abolished might makes right for a single natural resource, which is diamonds. Almost every major importing country now makes it illegal to import diamonds that have been plundered by armed groups overseas. Diamonds that have been violently extracted in one country can no longer be legally bought in another. Now, of course, by legally breaking these links between might and right, we haven't magically abolished suffering or injustice. Slaves are still secretly trafficked across borders. Some blood diamonds still leak into global commerce. But the great progress that we've made over the past 300 years has been transforming what used to be accepted practices of violence into widely reviled crimes. And this is where the future begins to look quite optimistic, because the world really is ready to abolish might makes right for oil. At the level of ideas, at least, the world already has converged on a rule to replace might makes right, and it's a rule that requires accountability over the power of oil and other resources. This is simply the principle that a country belongs to its people. <coughs> on this principle, a country's resources start out in the people's hands. And anyone who wants to sell them off has to be accountable to the citizens when it does so. So if a government wants to privatize oil, like happens in Australia's offshore, then the government has to be accountable to the people when it does that. If a government wants to sell country's oil off to foreigners, again, it has to be accountable to the citizens when it does that. Citizens have to have the basic rights and liberties to be able to find out what the government's doing and effectively protest what that is. On this principle, if someone sells off the country's resources without any possible accountability to the people, then those are literally stolen goods, goods that have been stolen from the country, stolen from the country's people. 
Now, that principle is already widely affirmed. World leaders from Malcolm Turnbull to Bill Clinton to Ayatollah Khamenei <coughs> already publicly announced that the oil belongs to the people. Large majorities of individuals in all regions of the world, including the Middle East, already tell pollsters that they believe that the people should be sovereign over their own country. And the trees are already signed. If you look at Article I of both of the major human rights covenants, it just says all peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth. <coughs> Almost every country has already ratified one of those treaties. In fact, 98% of the people in the world already live in a country that has affirmed those <coughs> words. Insofar as the world has heroes, the world's heroes are men like Gandhi and Mandela, who won the struggle for the idea that a country should belong to its people. Look, I'm not just saying that popular sovereignty is great. It is great. But popular sovereignty over natural resources is also the only political science solution to the oil curse. The oil curse is a problem of power. Today's law of importing states endows whoever is the most coercive with enormous unaccountable power. Those men use their power to start civil wars, oppress their citizens, spread their intolerant ideologies, and that unaccountable power has been causing our biggest threats and crises. That power of oil can't be checked from outside the country through alliances or invasions or sanctions. The power of oil can only be checked from inside the country from the people who are living there on the ground every day. And best of all, nearly all the world has already agreed in principle on the idea that whoever sells off the country's resources must be accountable to its citizens. So the best hope for taming the great power of oil is for our countries to leverage this broad global consensus to shift global trade away from this old rule of might makes right to a system where everyone who sells off a country's resources has to be accountable to the people when they do so. Our best hope is not the hard power of our invasions or our sanctions. Our best hope is the soft power of our democratic Our democratic integrity. <laughs> our best hope is the power of our taking leadership by changing our own laws to match our own convictions. So I've put a lot of practical information on a website called Clean Trade on what we can do to bring about positive change. Our first priority is just we have to tell our governments to get us out of business with these violent men abroad. 
We need to insist that we no longer want to be sending money to violent men when we pay at the pump or at the till. So Parliament could pass a law that would transition Australia's oil imports away from autocratic sources to non-autocratic sources at the same time as transitioning as quickly as you'd like to alternative sources of energy. This is a 100% peaceful change that can be achieved by acting only here, <coughs> changing our own laws for our own people on our own soil. There's more than enough non-authoritarian oil in the world. Australia doesn't need to buy that oil anymore. The transition would be economically manageable. But it will take leadership. In fact, it will take statesmanship to make that political change from today's business as usual. So if I could ask you to do one just one practical thing today, could you send an email to your senator, your MP, and just put the words cleantrade.org in the subject title, say whatever else you want to, but if you could email your representatives to get the word across. If you want to do more than send an email, there's more stuff on the website that you can see. There's an on online policy brief. There's a statement of principles telling legislators exactly what they should do. We're going to get the data soon on the big oil companies and which one of them do more of their business with authoritarian regimes. We are going to help you use that information to decide where you want to buy your petrol. A young woman just approached me last night after the lecture in Sydney. She's from Choice Magazine. She wants to make an app out of it where you just put in, you just open up your map, it shows you all the petrol stations around, shows you which ones do more business with authoritarians. You can decide where to buy your petrol. There are also boycotts to encourage our Chinese friends to also stop buying as much authoritarian oil. One of the boycotts is called the toycott. You don't think about it, but toys are plastic and plastic is oil, so if, when we buy toys, we might be buying oil that's been stolen from some of the most oppressed people in the world, and we shouldn't allow our children to play with stolen goods. If you really want to put your cash behind your principles, could I encourage you to con consider buying a Fairphone? which is quite a nice uh, smartphone, actually, manufactured by ideal idealistic young people in the Netherlands. It's not only 100% modular and recyclable, but as far as possible, it's made not using with the kind of conflict minerals from the Congo that we started out with. Clean Trade also has outreach for investors, <coughs> showing large institutional investors how they can shift their portfolios away from companies that are doing more business with authoritarian regimes. We're now working on clean trade shipping policy, trying to show the shipping industry that they should not be transporting stolen oil across the seas. And of course, clean trade has detailed policies for members of government. I know there might be members of government here tonight. Let me just invite you to be in touch if you'd like to talk about how Australia could lead by getting business with violent and coercive men abroad. 
So, we can talk more about the practicalities of how this all could happen. But let me just leave you by sharing my conviction that we really can do this. The world really is all set up for us to make this change. It might seem like might makes right for oil is just the way the world works, has always worked, and it's too hard to change it. But if you think about it, that's just how the slave trade and colonial rule and apartheid and blood diamond seemed to serious people then before they were overcome. Humanity's abolished that bad old rule of violence many times before for all of those things. And it's, the world is ready for us to abolish that bad old law one more time. It won't be easy, for sure. But if we act together, we can reduce the suffering and injustice that we'll see in tomorrow's headlines while also creating a safer world for us. <coughs> we can move the world its next step forward in history. If we work hard and work together, we can create a future beyond blood oil. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.